Hello and welcome to another episode of The Sharpening Report. I have a very special guest, first time on our show today, Pastor Jay McCarl. You probably will uh, be familiar with him from Before the Wrath, but he also has a book by the same name. So uh, without further ado, Pastor Jay McCarl, how are you doing? Hey, doing very well. It's an honor to be here today. Well, it's an honor for, to have you on. I've been following your work for quite some time. We have some common friends, uh, the Brent Millers, and uh, met, I met them a few years ago. Right. I just had lunch with Brent, in fact, a week ago today. We were discussing the next project coming up, which is very exciting. Oh, awesome. Well, we'll definitely have to talk about that. Yeah, it's been a few years since uh, since I've had the pleasure of seeing them, but they came through uh, Skywatch two or three years ago to talk about uh, The Coming Convergence, which was another excellent film. Um, but we are here to talk about Before the Wrath, and specifically the book, which ties in with the film. It, it deals with the same, uh, the same topic, pre-tribulation rapture, the gospel, Jesus, all of this stuff. And it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I do want to say that your, your book, well, and, and then also a little later for the audience, we're going to be discussing another one of Jay's books, uh, Answering Evil, which is something that every Christian should learn how to uh, do, how to answer, as, um, as it's a persistent concern for atheists and others who are uh, considering or even just downright challenging um, Christianity. Very important topic for us to discuss. But uh, first, your book, Before the Wrath, um, I was able to read it. Thank you for sending me a copy, by the way. I, I believe that, to me, it came across as just passionately written, almost poetic, but uh, it's very unique writing style that I enjoy. It's easy to understand, but it's still deep and complex. Um, so if people enjoyed the film, I, I think they're really going to enjoy the book. Uh, before getting to the book, though, can you introduce yourself for those who might not be familiar with you or your work and uh, or your testimony? Yeah, uh, my testimony is pretty long, so I, I won't get uh, too much into that. But I became a Christian when I was 10. I was a 10-year-old atheist, and God orchestrated all kinds of very interesting things where uh, I did receive the Lord when I was 10. Uh, kind of walked away from the Lord. I didn't get into a lot of the real bad stuff. God had his hand on me, and I really, looking back at it, I just, I, I'm so glad he did. But uh, I came back to the Lord in the end of my sophomore year in high school. Uh, I was suicidal. God brought me out of that one. Uh, a lot of kids were at that time, of course, you know, back being that, that long ago. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I got into um, uh, ministry, actually, as a youth pastor through Youth for Christ, uh, and then became a youth pastor and an assistant pastor at a large church in Napa. Uh, then uh, moved to San Diego, moved back up to Auburn here in 1988, where I became an assistant pastor, and then planted a church uh, across a very, very deep canyon from Auburn, California, uh, just south. That People got tired of driving the canyon. I told the pastor they're looking for a church up there, and he got very excited. And we planted it, and this January the 13th uh, will be actually our 30th anniversary. So we've been up here for 30 years, just outside the town of Cool, California. Not named after the weather, it's named after an itinerant evangelist who used to come up here during the gold rush. The gold rush, California gold rush, started about 10 miles from my house in a place called Coloma. And he would minister in the mining camps. Uh, we really don't know much about him, except he's buried in Burbank, of all places. So uh, interesting. But that's uh, where I'm at. I'm at a church here. I'm past senior pastor at Calvary Georgetown Divide, uh, which is associated with Calvary Chapel. It's non-denominational. And we're in a town called Greenwood, but nobody really knows where that is. So we just kind of refer to ourselves as Cool Calvary. 
Excellent. Well, I, I love Calvary Chapel and everything Calvary Chapel does. I'm non-denominational myself, but if I, you know, I, I find that I align more with Calvary Chapel than anything else that's out there. Uh, and so I, I love what you guys are doing. Um, in the book, you, you talk about uh, the, the gospel, of course, but you, you also talk about weddings and the rapture of the church. Now, generally speaking, for those who just are coming brand new to this topic, uh, and we can get into more specifics later, that's, you know, obviously what the show is about, but kind of generally speaking, uh, what do weddings have to do with uh, the gospel and the rapture? Well, what's interesting is that the in the Old Testament, in places, it's not very common, but uh, for instance, in Ezekiel 16, um, weddings, marriages are used as uh, metaphors to explain God's relationship either with the Jews or his relationship with the church. Uh, obviously, those relationships are, are uh, similar, a little bit different. Uh, again, I don't have to go into all of that. That's a whole theological field of study right there, as you know. But um, the, uh, uh, in the New Testament, the way Jesus taught his disciples is you've got to remember, we've got to remember that Jesus wasn't speaking to scholars. He wasn't trying to teach things to be written down to be discussed in seminaries, even though that's what happened, of course. But he was teaching peasants. So he spoke to the peasants using what they knew. Now, they used a whole different type of logic in the Middle East, not just in those days, but they still do. You can find it actually starting right around the, the break line of the eastern Mediterranean and going east all the way through India. There's a certain type of logic that they have. So it's very, very concrete. So the way Jesus would teach, would he would, you know, if he wanted to make a, some sort of a spiritual point, for instance, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he might say concerning the kingdom of heaven, okay, everybody, you know what a farmer does? You guys are farmers. You know what a farmer does? I'm heavily paraphrasing, as you can tell. Um, they would say, sure, you know how he scatters seeds, some lands on hard ground, other types of soil and whatever, and the good soil it bears, you know, a hundredfold and all of that. And the farmers would go, yeah. And he'd say, kingdom of heaven is like that. Oh, okay. It was very basic. But they would never forget it. They got it because it's what they did. So when Jesus is with his disciples, his disciples think he's going to take over the world. I mean, he's going to take over. He's going to knock out the Romans, set up his throne and the throne of David. It's going to be the most important kingdom in the world. God will rule from there. The Messiah, they were believing that he was the Messiah and he was the Messiah, he is the Messiah. But that they believed and with the preconceptions that this is what he was going to do. Sort of like the military messiahs that had already come and gone. Israel had lots of messiahs. There was only one real one. But there were a lot of people that claimed that. So in order for him to break their preconceptions, which didn't happen until Pentecost, they finally got it. The Holy Spirit comes, clicks. But um, he would use the illustration, look, guys, you think I'm coming, and I'm paraphrasing again, broadly paraphrasing, so forgive me because I'm out of time. But uh, he would... Uh, he would tell the guys, you know, you think I'm coming right now with the sword. He says, I'm not. That day will come. But what my coming is going to be like, and then he'd pop in something from a wedding, something that we would know from looking back through history, through culture, through anthropology, through um, uh, customs and what have you, that he would be referring to weddings. Now, that is a little bit blank in our study uh, in modern times because we as Western thinkers tend to philosophize the Bible, so to speak. That's not a good word to use it. But we, uh, we mystify it. We allegorize it. There are really very few, if any, allegories per se in the Bible. It's entirely different. 
the, uh, the Lord is just trying to make his point very simply. So what Jesus simply said to his guys was, you think I'm going to rule and reign right now. I'm telling you, it's going to be like a wedding. I'm the bridegroom. You're the bride. Now, they wouldn't have taken offense at this because he wasn't saying anything effeminate to them. He was simply saying, like our weddings, guys, you, some of you are married and uh, some of you aren't. You know the drill that this is how we do our weddings. The bridegroom goes away. And he stays away for an indeterminate amount of time. But you know approximately when he's planning on coming back. Most weddings in the Judean area among uh, um, uh, Arabs, other pagans, what have you, that lived in the area, Arabs were pagans at that time. You know, Islam didn't come along until you know, over 600 years after Jesus. So uh, they, would, they would have the, a similar type of regional wedding. But the one thing that everybody knew back then was when that wedding was going to occur. That was just sort of the general custom. And you get that by going back in time through, through studying uh, all these different sources. There's lots and lots of them out there. But you have to go back before the fall of the temple. You've got to get back before then because customs were added. Thinking and, and uh, even allegories because of Hellenized thinking or, or Greek thinking, modern thinking, was creeping in at that time. And it was changing the theology of the Jewish people and altering their customs. So you've got to go back before the fall of the temple and say, well, what were their weddings like? <clears throat> and you realize that Jesus talked frequently about his second coming as a wedding where he was the bridegroom, the Jews and the church, for that matter, was the bride, and that he was going to leave, prepare a place, come back, and then take the bride to be with her where he is. And that was a very, very clear illustration, and he kept repeating it, or parts of it, or different directions of it, but he kept going back to that wedding, a very gentle illustration, a very non-militaristic illustration. We're not talking about pacifism here. We're talking about his guys were ready to fight. And he didn't want them to do that. They'd lose anyway. He says, this is not the time. Later is the time. But I'll be coming back. And that's what it's going to look like. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. You know, uh, you, what I really like about it, too, is this is something you've been talking about for a long time. Uh, I remember a long time ago. Um, I was kind of in this place where I was just totally confused about the rapture. You know, I, w I had given my life over to Jesus, and I, I was convinced that, you know, the rapture was just something that's unknowable. And um, and I, I, I was interested in it, but I didn't make it like a focus or anything. And uh, so a long time ago, I caught one of your presentations. Uh, you, you were giving a sermon or something at a church on the Galilean wedding. And this was before, you know, before the wrath in the book and, and all that. And I watched that, and it, it just it clicked. It was like the lights came on. It was like, oh, it makes so much sense, pre-tribulation rapture. You know, that, that really clicked. And from that point on, I started looking into a lot of other uh, studies in it, learned that a lot of the ancient church fathers talked about it. Uh, there's even some stuff in Dead Sea Scrolls about it. I mean, there's all this ancient um, history about the pre-tribulation rapture specifically. So that, that was kind of my springboard to convincing me that that was, that was the right view. Um, you, you draw a, uh, actually I'm a little ahead of myself. There are some, uh, beautiful connections here, uh, between baptism and communion and, uh, and the ancient Galilean wedding. Uh, can you tell us about some of these? Well, the baptism part had to do with the Jewish custom that originated way back in the times of Moses with clothes washing of all the things, but it was, it was a cleansing ceremony. It started right before God gave the 10 commandments. The, later on, the Jews tended to uh, um, take those, those great moments 
where God was doing something, having to do with things, for instance, and we can make a long list, but let's just stick with covenant. When two people were going to make a covenant with each other, they would go through a certain amount of, uh, a certain uh, line of ceremonies uh, in order to make this covenant. Now, a covenant was something, I mean, this is going to be super brief on this, but a covenant was something that didn't make two people bound to a contract. It actually made them, in the eyes of the people, in the minds of the people back then, it made two people now kin, so that when you're looking at a, at a husband and a wife, you're also looking at, as it were, a brother and a sister. Now, that's not in some sort of a strange, weird way, or even it sounds like, wow, that's pretty perverted. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the wife joining the bridegroom's family, so she is now blood with them. The way that they would do this was through the communion that we you know that you're talking about it wasn't called that back then but it was a certain act that ratified a covenant but in preparation to that they would uh, go to uh, if they lived in Jerusalem of course there were things called mikvaot or mikvahs uh, they, it's a ceremonial cleansing bath it's like a jacuzzi sized tub sometimes they were gigantic but most of the time they were you know sort of a manageable size filled with very very pure water preferably rainwater or running water that's living water living water wasn't a mystical thing to them it was moving water which was extra pure and refreshing so it was something that you know if living water's gushing for from us for instance that means we're refreshing to other people. We're health-giving, uh, health-promoting, life-promoting as far as our spiritual effect on other people. That's what living water coming from us meant to them. They could picture it, see. So this mikvah would be filled with that. And what would happen was on the day of the betrothal, which was the day that the covenant was made, where the bride and groom would become husband and wife, but wouldn't live together as husband and wife for another full year. They would part company until they came back together again for, uh, for the wedding ceremony itself. So uh, in the morning, first thing, because it was a, a very sacred type of thing that they were entering into, this covenant, very sacred, very holy, they would always begin with a ritual cleansing. But it didn't mean go into this mikvah, this tub full of water, and scrub and bring soap and all that had nothing to do with that. But you would have to go into the mikvah, and you would dunk down and get your head completely underwater. It was, it was the beginning of baptism. That's, this is the origin of baptism. It could be done wherever there was living water, including a river, John the Baptist at the Jordan. You can see the connection there. And what you did is when you went in there, uh, and you put your head underwater, and you stepped back out, and then you dried yourself off, you had in their minds, you, it, there's a picture that comes to their minds. To us, it would be rather intimate. It's difficult to talk about. Um, in, in sort of mixed company, but you're re-entering your mother's womb and then coming out of your mother's womb and you are born again. And that's the, the expression that they actually attach to it. But what it meant was not just born again, but born again into another family. So you're leaving your old family. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave only unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's not about sex. That's about covenant. And they're being born again into a whole other family, a whole other tribe, a whole other village, as it were. Uh, this was the essence of baptism. This is why for us, baptism is very ceremonial to the people back then and in the Middle East today. For instance, um, why is it so difficult for a Jew or an Arab to even want or think about converting to Christianity, converting to Christ? And it's because they have this understanding that they would literally die uh, socially, 
um, uh, familially uh, to their families, to their village, to their tribe, to their town, uh, because they had joined another family. And baptism was the symbol of that. This is why we need to take baptism a whole lot more seriously. It doesn't save us. You know, remember, it's not an issue of salvation, but it's a statement that I have left my own old tribe, even my family, as it were, even though I haven't separated from them. But I have joined another family to people on that part of the world. That's treacherous. That's really, really serious stuff. This is why people, that when they got baptized, especially in the older days, they'd kill you. Today, um, in uh, certain more tribal areas of the world, if you decide to get, become a Christian and you get baptized, your family might be obligated to kill you for wow. honor. These are some honor killings come from because you have deserted the family. When Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother, sister and brother, and so forth, he goes down that list. You can't come and follow me. He's not saying love them less or hate them. He's saying, you're going to join up with me, and they're going to say, you hate us. You really don't. You don't have the emotion of hate there. Uh, you've got a great love for the people. But they are going to say that they, you, the one who has decided to follow Jesus, hate them. That comes with baptism. When you do that, I'm dying to my old life, my old family, my old tribe, and I'm being born again into a new family. Now, that happens in the morning. So it's a symbol of about what's about to happen. The bride and groom are going to form their own family, and they're going to be physically related to each other. Now, sure, the bride is going to go live with the bridegroom at the bridegroom's father's house. But they are, as people look at them, a brother and sister type of an arrangement. So they, you know, leaves his father and mother, woman cleaves only, you know, leave and cleave and all of that. But they don't go out and live in the country. They live at the bridegroom's father's house. Uh, this is one of the reasons why today, even today, in our modern Western Judeo-Christian culture, a bride will take on the husband's last name because she has now left her family, her tribe, and now has cleaved, as it were, cloven, whatever, cleaved to her bridegroom's family, and that name, she's joined the other tribe. But this was acceptable with weddings. It's not acceptable when it comes down to saying, I was following one God or one set of principles, and now I am now following Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. And wow, that would just absolutely upset everybody's apple cart. At the, at the Last Supper, to answer your question, I'll try and be more brief on this. But Oh, you're fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, with the, uh, um, uh, the cup at the Last Supper. Um, when Jesus passes around the cup, there are, uh, you read all the different accounts, the three different accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, on what happens at the Last Supper. And you do see Seder elements going on in there, but you see other things that are also on top of that. At the, uh, in, uh, when Jesus pours the cup and he passes it around, uh, some of the Seder elements have already been accomplished, and he's doing something unique. So when he passed, pours the cup, passes it to the guys, and he says, uh, take this cup, for this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sin of many, uh, because not everybody's going to take the cup, because the bride, if this was done in a wedding context, a bride would take have a cup handed to her, and if she didn't want the bridegroom, she would reject it and push it back. So you can see things forming right there. So um, he would pass, he said, this is the new, again, the new covenant uh, uh, in my blood, uh, that which is poured out for the remission of sins of many. Take it and drink it, for I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Now, what would happen at a Galilean or even a regional wedding, uh, just any sort of an ancient wedding in that area before the fall of the temple, uh, again, in that region, the uh, bridegroom would take a cup at a wedding, at a betrothal ceremony that would get the couple legally married, but not able to live together for a year, but still an indeterminate amount of time. And he would pour the cup, as I already said, hand it to the bride. If she wanted him, she would take the cup, take a sip, pass it back to him. And then he would take the cup and take a sip. And now they have ratified their covenant with each other. And in the eyes of all the witnesses, because families didn't care about whether they had guests, they wanted witnesses, because that's how you ratify a covenant with witnesses present. Then everybody would shout amen. And now they would look on this couple as now they are physically related to each other by blood. But then the bridegroom would say to the presence of all, and this is still common in Jewish weddings, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses and Israel. And then either with his mouth or just by implication, if he really didn't even need to say it again, because it was going to happen again, he would say, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it again with you anew with you in my father's house. You see, so when Jesus said this to the guys, They knew it was sort of a kingdom thing, but what he was doing was he was saying, look, we're not taking up the sword to drive out the Romans. We're not doing that part right now. But what it's going to be like is a wedding. Here's the cup. I want you to take the drink. Drink the cup. Don't push it back. I want you to, in other words, we're going to be betrothed because Jesus was kept telling them over and over again, and they would just blow it off. He would say, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. And He's trying to get that through their heads. So he gives them this cup illustration. I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. Because at the wedding feast itself, one of the first things that happened, and it, things could happen in different orders, so I'm not, I can't give you an exact order on it, but at the wedding feast, then the bridegroom would pour the cup again, and he would take the first sip, and then he would give it to the bride, and she would automatically take that sip because now they can live as husband and Wife. They can consummate the marriage and they can live together in their apartment for the rest of their lives in the father's house. That's where they went. So that's how he illustrated what he was doing. He kept going back to a wedding over again. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to think about that. And it really helps put a lot of context onto some of these you know, passages that uh, when at first read, they seem a little strange just because we're not of that culture or that time. And it, it really helps us uh, picture what Jesus was, was really saying. One of the most exciting things uh, for me, you draw a connection between uh, the church age that we're currently living in and the betrothal period. So can, can you explain that, the betrothal period, uh, and how that helps us determine, uh, or does that help us determine what why we're still waiting for the rapture of the church uh, nearly 2,000 years uh, after the death of Jesus. That is the key to understanding why we're still here. We're in that betrothal period. Um, the betrothal period was, again, approximately a year. Uh, it would be a, a year time, but the Galileans had developed a game. Now, this is learned not by reading books or digging things out of the ground. You have to use a literary approach to the research and sort of work your way backwards into it. Uh, it's in the last chapter of the book, uh, the Before the Wrath, whenever it comes out, hopefully by the end of the year, it'll be out. The COVID thing is delayed the manufacturing. So it's six months late at this point. But uh, it's explained in more detail in the last chapter of the book. But um, at the end of the betrothal period, the father would tell the son, go get your bride. But only the father had the, uh, the authority to tell the son when to go. And nobody knew. It was part of the Galilean game. 
the Judeans may or may not have ever done that. There's no indication they ever did. But the Galileans, at least according to the Bible, which is the biggest resource on looking at a small little area of tribal weddings, Galilee, who's going to write about that, you know, in ancient times? You know, there's... Parchment is, is really expensive. Papyrus is expensive. You're not going to waste any scroll space. Walking, writing about this in a little tiny um, nuance, full of this sort of thing. Uh, so um, anyway, during the betrothal period, between the time that the bridegroom and the bride take that cup and the time that the bridegroom comes back to get the bride, he goes home to his father's house and he adds a room onto his father's house. He prepares a feast, the wedding feast, which is made mostly of dried food. And he's got to get all kinds of things put together. And it's very, very expensive to do. If you're a dirt poor family, this is going to be a real challenge to get the job done. And, of course, he's got to add a room onto his father's house. Houses in those days were like small compounds, layers upon layers of rooms. They would stack them on top of each other. They might be able to go three stories high before their engineering processes allowed it to collapse. It just wasn't very well built. But they would always add the room onto that compound. And there would be multi-generations living under the same roof with a big atrium there. And even if they were a poor family, this would be the general arrangement. So the bridegroom goes away for a year. The bride goes home and she does two things that are really, really important. The first one is she prepares her wedding dress. She pieces it together. And remember that Israel is the crossroads of the world. The King's Highway, the Silk Roads, the, the Spice Roads all ran through that little land bridge of land between the ocean and, the, and the, one of the worst deserts in the world. So they could, they could even get Chinese silk if they needed to get some really, really fancy stuff to make the dress. But the dresses, you can look them up on the Internet, especially if you look at Yemenite weddings, which Yemenite Jews may be uh, like a time capsule of what life was like in the Second Temple period because they were isolated for so long. Look at their wedding dresses, and they're just magnificent, layers upon layers, like, almost like hoop skirts without the hoop. It was just billowing cloth. It was amazing. And she'd spend a whole year doing this. But she would also do something else. She wore a veil on her face. And every time she stepped out of her house, she put the veil on so you could only see her eyes. And this was a message to the entire watching world. Number one, she's betrothed. This is very exciting. Number two, she's spoken for. Don't even try and approach her. And number three, she's keeping herself pure for her bridegroom. One of the big issues coming through the churches lately has been a horrendous thing where purity, not as the Western world sees it, but as the Bible sees it, is being dispensed with. Well, that was then, this is now. We don't need this anymore. What is our veil, Bride of Christ, is the question. It's the veil that we wear as the Bride of Christ is our purity, because that's what the veil was to the Bride. Now, this, again, is not covered in any detail that's as a teaching thing in the Bible itself. This is where you get outside the Bible. You Now you start looking at what we do know about ancient weddings in that region, and this was always put in place. The betrothal period, the bride kept herself pure while she's waiting for the bridegroom who has gone home to his father's house to prepare a place, to prepare a room, uh, for not only the nuptials, but where they will live, like an apartment, for the rest of their lives on, on that earth, on the earth. Um, this, of course, is where Jesus, you know, the, John 14 at the beginning, he's just given them some horrendously bad news, the disciples, in the Last Supper room. And he says, but hey, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many, we say, mansions. Well, that's an old King James way of logicating. I like that word. I like it's a real word, but it's a good word. Logicating. Uh, if I'm going to live in heaven, it must be a mansion. 
But all Jesus was saying was many bridal chambers. How do we know that? Because he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me where I am. You know where I'm going, even though they really didn't get it. But that's a description right there of how a bridegroom betrothes himself to the bride, goes home, prepares the the, uh, the bridal chamber and the apartment they're going to live in with the promise that he's going to come back and take her away from where she is to his father's house where they're going to be together forever. That's how that worked. Wow, that's amazing. And that's the exact moment that we're waiting for. That brings us up to the uh, time right before the wedding when the groom is allowed to go get his bride. How does the ancient wedding rituals uh, point us uh, to that event, to the pre-tribulation rapture for us as the bride of Christ today? Well, the there are a lot of verses about pre-tribulation raptures that are pulled out by lots of different pastors, scholars, theologians, um, you know, uh, great men like John Walford and people like that who uh, who have you know studied the Greek and what have you. But what I found is that to uh, if you get into a debate with somebody who might be post-trib or amillennialist or whatever, they really have some you know pretty powerful arguments that can that can just sort of leave everybody at a stalemate. Yeah, the Bible. You know, you can do that. But the Bible was written to peasants, remember, and it was trying to illustrate something in the simplest of ways uh, of, in this particular case, an event that is to come, Jesus' return. And he, Jesus would draw them a picture saying, remember what our weddings are like? Yes. The bridegroom goes away? Yes. The father tells him when he can go get his bride. It's a surprise to the bride. She's got to keep herself ready. She's got to keep herself pure. She's got to stay in that wedding dress towards the end and all of that. And then he comes to get her. Um, the the model that, that happens, you know, the, the very short version of it, is that the father tells the son, go get your bride. He gets his entourage together, the, the, the groomsmen with him, maybe relatives, brothers, and all of that. And they charge down the stairs. Typically took place at night because it was a surprise. He'd blow a shofar. I've got uh, you know all kinds of things that I use in my presentation for that. And you know the really loud, obnoxious instruments. From the roof of the house, he'd blow the shofar to wake up the entire village. They don't have, you know, these cute little phones that we have, you know, to call each other, and they don't have alarm clocks. So he wakes everybody up. He he takes his men with torches and carrying a litter, which is like a platform, or uh, typically it would be a platform because they didn't really sit in chairs in those days, but it could be a chair-shaped bench uh, between two poles. Uh, it's in the movie. We have one that was made, it was used in the movie. It, it's, uh, uh, you know, it would look something kind of like that. And that's to carry the bride. So the guys take off and they go through the streets and they're shouting, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing songs. And as they serpentine through the streets of the village, all the invited guests have to come down. They got to wake up, throw their robe on and head right down the stairs and get in line with this parade, which gets longer and longer and longer. Well, what's that? Well, frankly, it's the resurrection of the dead. Because if you remember, the resurrection of the dead is the real issue that the Jews and the church has been waiting for. You even find that, the resurrection of the dead, as the very last tenant in the Nicene or Apostles' Creed that we're waiting for the resurrection of the dead. So what's that have to do with the rapture? What if you're alive when the resurrection of the dead takes place? That's the rapture. Wow. So the rapture is the resurrection of the dead contingency 
you see. And we don't often think of it like that, but that was the question the Thessalonians asked Paul and the Corinthians asked Paul, and he said, we who are alive and remain will be changed and caught up. Twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up. Same thing, if you're alive, because somebody had been telling those people the resurrection of the dead had already happened. And he says, no, 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 when it does, if you're alive, this is what's going to happen to you. See, so, yeah, First Corinthians uh, 15 and First Thessalonians 4, you can read it there. So, Anyway, he collects all the people. They arrive at the bride's house. Uh, The bride steps onto the litter, and then they pick her up off the ground. So she is elevated off the ground. They would, you know, know, it's never used anywhere that the word flying is not in the Bible, because that was a concept that they didn't have. But the effect is they are, she's taken off the ground and taken to the bridegroom's father's house with the bridegroom leading her and the rest of the entourage. And they, instead of serpentining through the streets to pick up more people, that part's done. They've done that. They've got everybody they need. Now they go straight to the father's house with the bride off the ground. They go into the compound. Everybody follows. The bride's father gives everybody white linen robes. If it's a wealthier family or even a middle-class family, there were middle-class people in those days, and they could afford such things. That marked all the people there as, as honored guests. They didn't have any gate crashers that way, because, you know, you show up in your street clothes. There's an incident like that over in uh, Luke 16, I think it is. Um, uh, Luke 16, or Luke, anyway, the parable of the great banquet, anyway, it's it's in there, um, where they find a guy in his street clothes at a wedding, at a wedding feast, and they throw him out, you know. So you've got to be you know, dressed by the father to be there. And once they get inside the compound, the father closes the gate. Nobody opens the gate. Nobody goes in. Nobody goes out for seven days and nights. That's how long these weddings typically lasted. Now, remember, if you read something else in in uh, some scholarly journal, well, here's a wedding that lasted three days and lasted five days. They, they had the freedom to do it differently, but they had a standard that they tried to keep, if they could afford to keep it that way. And that was seven days locked away, and anybody that was outside that missed going in, the, the guest was late, uh, they weren't allowed in. Uh, somebody wasn't invited, they weren't allowed in. Uh, somebody was lazy, they weren't allowed in. And what they called it, it was just one of these these little idiomatic expressions. They would say that person is experiencing the wailing and gnashing of teeth. The disappointment is so intense that they can't be there. So the model that we have is collecting the people that were asleep, the resurrection of the dead, getting the bride and her entourage and her family the bride of Christ, lifting her off the ground and carrying her to the father's house so her feet don't touch the ground, flight as it were. You go inside the compound, the door is shut, and for seven days and nights, the feast goes on. That's the model we're given. It's not a lot of the verses that you can debate back and forth, you know, the gap between the the, uh, end of beginning of Revelation 4, for instance. I think that's valid, but it's not a strong argument. Um, but when you look at the, the pre-tribulation verses, you can even, I don't mean this in any literal sense, but you kind of set them aside for a second and just look at the model Jesus gave us. We don't have an alternative. It's a pre-trib rapture. That's the way it works. Man, that, that is absolutely amazing. Uh, usually, usually this is the time for uh, viewer questions, and there was really only one that, that came up, and it has to do with this, so it's a perfect time for it. Um, and there was a few different people that asked. So usually I call out like the first name of somebody who asks a question and then ask it, but uh, sure. this, was, this was from a few people. So um, there, And I had this question too. There, there are two rituals in the 
uh, ancient wedding ceremony that, uh, to me, total slam dunk for the pre-tribulation rapture view. And they're the ones that you just brought up, the, the bride being carried or, or, or flown to the wedding and the seven-day celebration. Uh, and I believe those are two also that you mentioned uh, in the film and in that, that sermon that I mentioned at the top of the show on the Galilean mm-hmm. wedding. Yeah, and, uh, and for those who are watching, that is available on YouTube. You should check it out. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, some have wondered if those traditions developed after the time of Christ, uh, and you cite a number of sources in the back of the book. Um, from which specifically do you, uh, di- did you learn about the flight of the bride and the seven-day celebration and from that list? Yeah, that's a, you know, I hate to tell you this, but there were so many different resources, I can't sort them out in my brain. But people like Alfred Adersheim and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, um, uh, they have tremendous uh, amounts of resources on this. Um, uh, a guy that unfortunately has fallen into a bit of controversy, but not because of his doctrine, is Ravi Zacharias. He brings some of this up. Um, uh, there are uh, even secular journals and secular books, like from Epic to Canon, which is written by a guy who is is either a very hardcore agnostic or an atheist who is, well, he passed away recently, so he's not an atheist anymore. But he wrote this incredible thing on covenants and how weddings work and how families work. And there's information in there on that. But the key that I got by of all the interesting things was from um, a friend who lives, oh, about a half an hour from my house. He is a Messianic Jew. He's a brilliant man. Uh, he was born in Afula, Israel, grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home in New York, and then has since become a Christian and got his, uh, his MDiv, and, and he's been making it his field of study to evangelize the Jewish people, you know, because his last name is Cohen, so he's, you know, he's really, he loves doing that. that. This is his calling in life. And I sat down with him and I said, I'm missing something here. Now, this was like 12 years ago. When I was starting to put all this together, and I'm starting to see these patterns, and and let's let's see if they link. Let's see how they just set. Let's get the evidence out and see what it tells us. And I said, I said I'm finding things that I can't account for biblically or even in ancient uh, uh, guys like Adersheim or what have you. We go way back. Uh, 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 William F. Albright in his journals and that sort of thing. And, they, and they're not mentioning, he says, well, here's the thing. He says, for instance, let's take the, the breaking of the flask, right? You break the glass and you shout mazel tov. The, if you ask the Jewish community of more traditional Jewish people, well, where, how, where did that develop? And they'll say, well, we've always done that. And then they'll give you a lot of different reasons as to why they do it. They're all really cool illustrations. I really love it. But if you follow the tradition back, it started in 1849, A.D., A.D., so what Jacob told me, my friend, way back before the fall of the temple, just get back be, uh, uh, before 66 uh, AD, and he said, you've got to pare away all these other traditions. So find out not only what's there, find out what's not there. This was also confirmed by a woman who, I don't even know if she's still alive or not, but she was retired um, a uh, professor of Hebrew studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, she ran the department for 50 years, and she retired to a place about an hour from my house. And I met with her only twice, but that's what she said, too. She said, you're going to have to do a process of elimination, and it's going to take time because you only have literary sources to prove it. So it's a big homework deal. And uh, once again, if you look at my bibliography, it spans several pages in there are all kinds of things that I found useful, sometimes not so useful. 
successful, but they're in there because that was part of the process of elimination. And you just have to, uh, you have to see what the wedding looked like prior to 66 AD. The temple fell in 70 AD, but the war really engaged in 66 uh, AD. So prior to that, just a process of elimination. And this is what you end up with. Other things, sure, they had other traditions. They, there were other things that weren't mentioned, but they weren't important to it. Uh, one of the ones that pops up, of course, is over in uh, John chapter 2, first miracle. Jesus, of course, turns water into wine. There's a few nuances in there that don't really teach us that much about the Galilean wedding, except that they had them. But a couple of traditions, like why did they have these water pots when you know, and they were full of wine and, and all of that sort of thing, or water rather, and then it was changed into wine. So, yeah, so it's a process of elimination. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you putting this book together. It, it's phenomenal. As of the time of this recording, it's not available yet. So when is the book uh, set to release? Where can people get it? And how can people find you online? All right. Well, it was set to release last May. Uh, and, and I talked to Brent about it again on Friday. And I said, so what's the update? And he's just frustrated because there's just nothing anybody can do about it right now. This is the age of COVID and it slowed things down. So he said, he didn't say definitely. He said, he, he just kind of shook his head and he goes, I hope by January 1st. So we're looking at the end of the year. That means it's, you know, it's over. It'll be seven months late, but that's the manufacturing stuff going on. Personnel cutbacks and shipping and all of that. So it looked, uh, the cover, I haven't seen the actual cover, but it'll look similar to the Before the Wrath movie poster. I don't know if it has the people's faces on it or not. And it's just called Before the Wrath. So uh, hopefully it'll be out. You can get it through Amazon. You can get it through, this is a really hard one, <clears throat> beforetherath.com. You can do that. And, uh, of course, the videos are there. Uh, you can get it in Blu-ray and in DVD and streaming. And you can also arrange for that through um, uh, Amazon. On Amazon, the, uh, the DVD is still the number three documentary video DVD uh, on Amazon. And it was actually the number one selling DVD media in the documentary category for over six months. It got to within number five uh, for the first three weeks that it was out, challenging things like Jumanji and uh, uh, Frozen 2 and things like that. It got way up there and held. So people during this time of being isolated and wondering with everything kind of falling apart around us in the world, they want to know what's the end of the world like. So the timing on this thing was orchestrated by God because it came out many months late, and suddenly everybody wants one. So because it, it tells the story, and it's hopeful, you know. It's there's a lot of scary stuff in the Book of Revelation for sure, and it's supposed to be. But this is when Jesus was teaching his disciples. This is what he wanted them to think of it. Think of it like a wedding. It's going to be the best news you ever saw. Amen. And if anybody out there who's watching this video has not seen the movie, I highly suggest going and checking it out. Uh, like, like Jay said, you can find it on Amazon and beforetherath.com. Make sure you check that out, the movie, and then wait for the book because the book is phenomenal. Uh, if you like the movie, you're going to love the book. I, I certainly did. And we have a lot more to talk about. We have to talk about uh, how, to, how to answer this problem of evil because when we witness to people and tell them the times that we're living in, uh, if they're an atheist, 
atheist, most assuredly, the first question they're going to have is, what about evil? How can a good God allow bad things to happen? Well, Jay has a book about that as well. We are going to discuss that in the next section, but that is going to be for members only. So if you are not a member yet, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership. It's only 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. I suggest getting the $100 a year if you can, because then you get two months for free. You just do it once and you don't have to think about it for a whole year. And just a reminder, the reason that we're doing this is because YouTube got in the nasty habit of deleting our videos and channels. This is how we can ensure that we have total control over our content and we don't have to ask anybody's permission to talk about controversial issues sometimes that relate to Christianity just by nature of being uh, Christianity. So that's why we have Daily Renegade. Uh, very much appreciated for everybody who uh, is viewing this for free. Um, and please come again, even if you can't get a membership, that's totally fine. We are going to keep putting out free content as, as uh, long as we're able. So if you are a member, hang on the line. Everybody else, thank you so much for watching. And until next time, this has been the Sharpening Report. Uh, take care and God bless. All right.